What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 53 of the Having Report podcast with myself, your host, Brad Mines. The price of Bitcoin is hovering around 61,000 US dollars or 75,000 Canadian. There are 934 more days until the next Bitcoin halving, according to BitcoinBlockHalf.com. Still, lots of time to stack sats during this cycle and start your journey to financial freedom, given to us by the anonymous Bitcoin creator or group, Satoshi Nakamoto. Today, we welcome our guest, the author of The Seventh Property, Bitcoin and the Monetary Revolution, Eric Yates. This turned out to be a really great episode for those who really want to understand this Bitcoin phenomenon. So let's get right to it. Welcome, Eric Yates, to the Haven Report podcast. It's episode 53. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Brad. Good to meet you, man. Yeah, so I say we jump right into it. Uh, you know, we want to get into the Bitcoin talk, but uh, I wonder if you can just give us a little bit of context for the listeners here. Uh, maybe give us a little bit of a background up until you came across Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so my background's in the traditional finance world. Um, I studied finance and economics as a double major in undergrad. And then when I graduated, I went to a large uh, management consulting firm that kind of specialized in what's called corporate restructuring. And we would deal with like businesses that were on the decline or going into bankruptcy and we'd help them with their problems. And, uh, you know, if they're, they're going through any sort of bit major issues where the guys who kind of come in and, you know, help them uh, turn things around. So it's kind of where I cut my teeth. And then I went to a private equity fund that specialized in buying businesses that are going through those types of problems as opposed to advising them. And, uh, and I was there for a little while and that kind of got me a lot of exposure to uh, a lot of the malinvestment and a lot of the bad things that are going on in our economy. You kind of get to see where the bodies are buried in a lot of these major companies. And um, so you know, with that experience, kind of in the background, like I discovered Bitcoin when I was an undergrad and um, it was like my senior year. I wrote some sort of prompt as a response in one of my economics classes where they asked us to talk about Bitcoin. And, uh, you know, I said it was a speculative investment, has no fundamental value. And then it was around 2016. There's a close buddy of mine who I was working with and he kind of kept pushing it. He was just like, dude, it's this really cool technology. Like, got to see what it does. And, you know, I just with a finance background, didn't really understand that. And, um, you know, oh, but I was getting a, I had like a CFA at this point. So I was applying a lot of that, like structured thinking to Bitcoin, which doesn't really fall neatly into any sort of framework that you get from like a traditional financial education. And, um, so he kept kind of pushing the technology on me and saying how cool it was. And um, I kind of kept pushing it off, but eventually I took a look at it. One of the first things that clicked with me was just like the freedom aspect of Bitcoin and how it can enable freedom with people. And um, how once I kind of started to dig on that angle and realize like, oh, a lot of these issues that we see that, you know, the Federal Reserve has largely kind of pinned our economy into a corner and is finding ways to extract wealth out of other countries and a lot of the negative effects that we see through those, uh, this you know, global financial system, I just always assumed there was no alternative. But when the freedom aspect of Bitcoin kicked in, I was like, oh, this is this is a base layer form of money that, um, you know, theoretically at scale wouldn't be able to be controlled by anybody. And that's what turned me on to everything. And then that's when I started to get a lot deeper. So it was kind of towards the end of 2019. Um, I was working at this private equity fund. And um, from like a career perspective, I was like, okay, um, what do you want to do? And then it took me a while um, for it to really like 
dawn on me uh, when it was kind of right under my nose for a little while. But I was like, dude, you spend all this free time just reading about Bitcoin. And uh, that's totally what you care about. But it just always seemed like this crazy thing to me back then, especially when the industry wasn't as big. I mean, it's grown so much over the past few years. But I was just kind of like, and, you know, we're still in a bear market back then. But I was just kind of like, you know what, um, I'm just going to jump into it. This is what I care about. And it's super interesting to me. And, um, and yeah, so I did. And, you know, one of the first things I wanted to do is get really deep. And uh, so I read a lot about the history of money. And um, you know the history of our banking system, and how a lot of that's evolved over time, and the theory, the different theories people have for you know what makes money good money, why certain monies emerged over time, um, and uh, and then ultimately how our banking system came to be, and what the cause and effect relationships are that are caused through that. So I kind of got deep into those areas, and you know I I wasn't certain of what I wanted to do. I kind of just had like a really high level idea in mind. Um, so like anybody who's thinking about being an entrepreneur, like I was, I was pretty clueless. I just like knew I had some runway and, you know, I was 20, 25 years, 26 years old. Um, when I made the jump, so I was kind of like, you know, now, now's the time to make it happen. And I can always go back to my career if I need to. Um, but yeah, so I made the jump and I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And then when I got deep in all this reading, the first thing that really became obvious to me was like, well, there's going to be a bunch of guys coming out of finance or coming into, you know, Bitcoin cryptocurrency space. They are going to need this exact same level of understanding that I had to provide for myself um, by, you know, picking through a bunch of different books, picking through a bunch of different resources. Um, and I was like, not everybody needs to go through all that. Like a lot of this information, you know, I'd read these huge books and really to like get the, the important information out of them that's uh, really relevant for understanding why Bitcoin's valuable. Um, you know, you only had to read 10, 15% of those books to really get all that, but you don't know that until you know it. So I was like, you know, I think that, uh, a lot of this process for people that, you know, have like a financial background, I can, I can summarize a lot of this stuff into a book. And I had a few of my own ideas, um, uh, but really just summarizing and synthesizing a lot of this information into a format that makes it very tangible for people, what Bitcoin's value proposition is, particularly those people with like a finance or economics background. Um, I tried to be, you know, a lot less like theoretical, a little bit more practical with what I was doing. Um, and that's pretty much the first thing I did in the space. And then I launched that this past June. And, uh, you know, I, so I started writing that in like August, 2020, and I kind of finished writing it by February of this year. And then, um, it took, took like four or five months to get through like, you know, the whole like editorial process and then get it published and get it designed and all that kind of stuff. So like that happened in June. Um, and when I say get it published, I mean self-published. Uh, if people are thinking about being, you know, authoring something in the industry, I think that if you are doing something really passionate about, and you know, your market, um, then self-publishing for first-time writers makes a ton of sense. Really trying to go after a publishing deal uh, doesn't make nearly as much sense as it used to. And so I did self-publish and then I started in June and then a few people got a hold of it that were kind of influencers in the industry and things have just started to move pretty quickly and it's awesome. Um, and yeah, that kind of brings me where we're at today. Um, so I'm doing a lot of things on the book and then you know I spent a lot of time just on Twitter and like future plans are I'm currently getting like a fund set up uh, and I'll kind of be announcing some of that stuff in the future. And, um, and yeah, that's pretty much, pretty much background. I appreciate that you were a skeptic at first and then came back around. Mm -hmm. And I also appreciate that 
you got into the space during a bear market because it's a lot easier to get into when the price is going nuts, right? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Sure. I mean, it's not to say during the 2017 market, I didn't have that thought cross my mind. That was definitely like one of the first times I was like, whoa. Um, but then the bear market occurred. And, you know, back then I wasn't like, I didn't know what I thought back then either. Um, I didn't know if I was all in on Bitcoin or, you know, I was still considering a lot of altcoins. Like now it's like, I, you know, I wouldn't qualify myself as a Bitcoin maximalist or anything. It's just like, I view Bitcoin as money and a system that'll be built on top of it. And a lot of these other types of coins and stuff, I just view as to be highly speculative at this point and a very different risk profile than what Bitcoin's offering. And, you know, I don't understand them well enough to really get too critical of any of them. But what I do know is that Bitcoin's a really sure bet and there's a lot of cool financial services that need to be replicated on it. So like once I kind of got to like that point of understanding, that's when I was like, all right, I'm, I really want to jump into this, which, but like in 2017, back then I was just like, oh, cool. Like this stuff's going up a ton. Like I want to get involved in this. Absolutely. I, I can relate to that. You mentioned... Yeah. You mentioned uh, here on the Happen Report, and you mentioned on Bitcoin Magazine that it was the freedom aspect that kind of enthralled you and really sucked you into the space. I wonder if you can just touch upon that briefly for us. Yeah, I mean, like, so with my background before, like, I've always been a big libertarian. Um, and I, I don't know, I don't like to put myself into like groups of thought because it, it always bites you in the ass. Like, I, I'm not, there's not, I don't agree with everything libertarian, like libertarianism has flaws. Um, but, uh, you know, my, I, I started reading Milton Friedman when I was like one of the, like the first economics book I read was capitalism and freedom by him. And, uh, that's kind of what got me started. And then you inevitably, so he's technically falls in like the school of economic thought of like the moder- uh, monetarist, um, cause he still believed in like necessity of monetary policy, but he was just, uh, um, he was definitely a proponent of uh, free market capitalism, whereas like Austrians take it a little bit of a step further and they're like, no, we don't need central banking. Um, and so like, that's what kind of led me more towards Austrian thinkers. And that's kind of ultimately where I, I landed. Um, and I think that, you know, the time when Friedman was writing a lot of his work, central banking hadn't kind of uh, evolved to the extremes that it has today either. And those consequences of its negative outcomes are much more readily apparent. But um, anyways, it's beside the point. Um, so I was always kind of like had this freedom aspect. And um, when I, I just always, I guess I was a bit nihilistic about the future of finance. I was like, there's this game being played and institutions are extracting wealth in a variety of ways. And that's not to say that like, you know, people in this space get very critical of like the incumbent financial system and, you know, they should, but that doesn't, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like there's still a, you know, all these functions like credit is not fundamentally a bad thing. Credit is a very, um, you know, fundamental purpose within an economy. It allows people to move value across time. Um, that's never going away in any system. And uh, there a lot of these things that have resulted in negative outcomes because of how the systems evolved over time and how centralized it's become. Um, a lot of those things are still very necessary within economies to have. They just need to be, they just need to have proper incentives so that they don't get out of hand. And um, with, uh, so like, I just always was like, okay, the system's gotten out of hand. What else are we going to do? There really isn't an alternative. It's just like the federal reserve controls the global banking system. Um, you know, foreign central banks are pretty much just like limbs of it. And um 
they're able to, uh, you know, implement these policies and, you know, they're able, they could force people into certain asset classes because people don't really have anywhere else to turn. And like, you know, gold was always the inflation hedge before that. Um, but gold wasn't something that people could theoretically operate um, with outside of owning a contract that gives you exposure to gold that's in a warehouse controlled by, you know, some group of people. And that the fundamental issue of gold is like, you never, people can never opt out of the financial system as a whole. You still had to, you could get exposure to gold's price, but you can never opt out and just conduct your life in gold. Um, and uh, Bitcoin kind of enabled that type of behavior. So like that's when when Bitcoin enabled people to actually, if they want, and not everybody has to do this, but if they want, they can fundamentally opt out of our current financial system. That's a very powerful incentive because that means that a lot of these financial institutions and these politicians, a lot of the decisions they've made are kind of predicated on um, people not having the ability to opt out of our current system. The fact that we are stuck with it and we have monopolized the financial economy um, means that uh, you know, they can get away with a lot more. So once I realized that like Bitcoin, people can control Bitcoin themselves, they can verify it, they can store Bitcoin themselves, they can send it to each other peer to peer, um, and they can verify it between one another. Um, and, you know, once, once you kind of, I realized that aspect, I was like, wow, this is a way to, if you want to go through the legwork, people have the option to opt out of the system and that's getting easier to do every day. Um, but, and that's not saying that everybody has to do that. It's not saying that people won't use financial intermediaries to assist them in doing all these things. That's all going to exist too, but it's more just like the game theory behind it. So like, um, I, there's like, in like military, there's like, a, it's like a deterrence theory is this aspect of military where they're like, um, you know, the reason that we have so many, like we have more than enough nukes created in the U S to just blow the entire world up. Um, but, uh, we create so many nukes and we have all these weapons and we go through these arm races just because we want to have the threat. We want to have so much of something so that people feel like they never have to use it because nobody's ever going to take it to that point. And like, that's kind of what Bitcoin's ability to allow people to opt out of our system gives is that type of a threat to like the incumbent banking intermediaries. Um, and they say, okay, well, we can't bail out banks anymore because people can get sick of it and they can opt into these, this new system. So like, that's the forward vision that I, that I see. And we're getting very close to that now. We're getting closer and closer every day. And once we get to that point, it's going to structurally change, I think, a lot of problems in society that, you know, before I discovered Bitcoin, I just thought were, um, you know, an inevitability there wasn't much to do about it. I was pretty complacent about all of that. Um, so, yeah. We've recently seen China reiterate its crackdown on Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. And I think I've seen that USA is now the number one mining country, has the highest hash rate. And did you, did you see that? And what do you think about that? And you think that trend will continue? Um, I, wouldn't say I am a global mining expert and I can say exactly where all the hash rates can end up with, you know, my general knowledge. Um, I could, I could see definitely why the U S and our energy economy, um, has grown with, you know, um, hydraulic fracturing over time and the amount of resources that we were able to access through that technological innovation. I could see why, um, you know, Bitcoin mines being able to enable that industry would make sense that we would be the largest, um, 
and uh, you know, with China, with after the uh, migration out of China. But um, in terms of where it'll be globally, uh, I hope that I hope that it's so distributed that people don't care. So I hope that in the future, and I think that there's a major incentive for a lot of countries to get mining infrastructure. Um, but I hope that it's decentralized enough in the future. And ultimately, you know, these miners are going to go to the different energy economies that provide them the cheapest source of energy. So um, the U.S. can provide that in a variety of different ways, but there's a lot of other places in the world where um, cheap energy can be accessed. And I think that also it's going to be enabling a lot of new creative ways. Like, you know, there's the whole thing going on with like the volcano mining in El Salvador. And I have absolutely no idea what the economic cost benefit is of all of those things. Um, but it sounds cool and it sounds nice. I mean, maybe that's something. I mean, th there's things like that that, uh, that could ultimately pan out when you have this form, this ability to enable um, the storage of energy in an economic way or the ability to at least um, capture excess energy. It makes other technologies more economic, which means more investment will drive into those. So like, uh, I think that that'll probably make it pretty distributed around the world, which would be ideal. Um, but it's, it's definitely a major question. So I'll give you a chance to talk about your book a little bit more. So from my understanding, it's to help people from the old financial world kind of migrate into the new world of decentralized mm -hmm. cryptocurrencies and finance. And you dive into kind of what's what's wrong in the old world and how Bitcoin fixes that. Or do you want to expand on that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I just focus on Bitcoin with the book. I think that... Mm -hmm. You know, regardless of your opinion, I think you got to start with Bitcoin because uh, mm -hmm. there's so many things that are fundamentally based around Bitcoin and understanding, you know, its history and how the technology works and how a lot of these other technologies were ultimately, um, you know, depending on people's perspective, adaptations or improvements or whatnot, or just different versions. Um, but having that fundamental understanding of Bitcoin, I think, is a great starting place for a lot of people. So I, I, I focused on that. And um Really, the first, it's like kind of 50-50. The first half is money and banking. And I start off the book just going through like monetary theory and give people like a framework. Well, it's just like the first chapter, really. But I give people a framework of thinking about mm -hmm. how, um, you know, what makes something a good form of money and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of people talk about like, oh, well, you know, money needs to be a store of value or money needs to be scarce, or it needs to be a medium of exchange. And people will kind of throw around these different functions of money, and then they'll talk about its different properties. Um, well, it needs to be fungible. It needs to be widely accepted. Um, and then, like, you know, for other people, there's also, like, money is defined by a lot of, like, in economic theories, just, like, um, the uh, the most saleable good and then like you know when safe dean wrote his book the bitcoin standard they kind of broke that into three different dimensions across time space and scale so like that before i got into bitcoin was kind of like there's a bunch of different sources that were talking about all these different things and like the first thing i wanted to do is i was like that all needs to be like summarized so like the first chapter is just like showing how all of that is connected and how you can think about money and giving you a framework of thought so that like if a new altcoin comes up or if some new technology comes up um, that is trying to be money or if there's something else, then you can apply this framework of thinking and be like, do I think that this would ultimately be a successful form of money and why? So like I kind of started off with that and then I get into the history of money and how it evolved over time, which kind of makes those properties much more tangible. You're like, oh, okay, like 
you know, when money started off, we had these different systems and people were using beads and they were using salt and they were using cattle. Um, and then that evolved into the precious metal era. And why did precious metals emerge? Well, they're fundamental, uh, fundamentally better than other forms of money, money in a variety of different ways. So, um, and I kind of walked through that and I apply this framework of thinking to like the evolution of money. And then like that ultimately around like the 14th, 15th century uh, necessitates a discussion of banking. Cause that was the first time when we really started to have this like institutionalized version of people storing money and having other third parties maintain that for them. And like, you know, how that ultimately evolves. And then, um, and I kind of, you know, banking emerged in a variety of different places during a, you know, relatively similar time period around the world. But I, I kind of focus on Europe, particularly in England, because that's what our current banking system is kind of predicated on that evolution. So, um, so I get into that. And then um, once you kind of go through that, you can see like, here's how banks started. Here's how central banks started and came out of that and what their original purpose was. And then you can kind of see how that evolved over time. And I get into the US and a lot of people don't realize that there are, you know, three central banks that were created and destroyed before the Federal Reserve was created. And, um, and once I kind of get through all that banking history of central banking, I do a chapter, which this was like the weirdest thing to me when I was doing a ton of research into um, money and banking was like, I didn't find a very good resource that said like, here's how central banking works, which I thought was incredibly odd. It was also odd because when I was in undergrad, I mean, if I got an education in finance and economics and I came out of that and it was pretty much just like the central bank sets interest rates because um, that makes our economy less volatile. And like, that was largely the extent of the education I got, which I think is super odd just because like, I mean, central banking policy and understanding every word, global markets hinge on every last word that the Federal Reserve says. And it's like, if there's anything to understand as an investor nowadays, you have to understand central banks and what they're going to do and what the, how that's going to affect the world. So like, you don't even need to get as much into like theory these days because everything it's pretty much just comes down to what central banks want to do. So I thought, I thought it was really interesting that like throughout that process, I never saw a very good resource that was like, here's what the federal reserve does in a more technical manner, because it's either like, there's like academic papers that'll, you know, say things in a bunch of words that most people can understand, or there's like the Investopedia explanation. And like, that's kind of the extent of what I got in undergrad. And I was like, well, you need to get more technical. So people actually know what's going on. It's just like how money is actually created. Um, and then once it gets into the banking system, how it expands and uh, what are like reserves and like all this stuff. So I get into like all those details um, and explain like, here's how the Federal Reserve works. Here's how that kind of like flows through our banking system. And here's how a lot of those cause and effect relationships. And obviously I'm very critical of the Federal Reserve in it um, because I think that there's so much information out there that uh, not just publicly, but at the even the Federal Reserve themselves are misrepresenting things to people. Um, and I think that there's very strong arg arguments to make why. Um, so I have this chapter on that. And, uh, and then I finished that off with just kind of like where we are in the economy today and like, you know, where I think a lot of different things are ultimately going to pan out given, given that understanding of central banking. So like, that's like the first half of the book. I don't know if you want me to stop or if you want me to keep going. 
<laughs> well, no, it's a, you know, it's a good overview uh, for mm-hmm. people that may be listening and want to learn more. Right. But do you have a copy of the book handy by any chance? Oh, you know what? I actually do. Hold on. Okay, cool. Let me grab I'm it. to see it. Yeah, I am. <laughs> so this is it. I designed it myself. So like go easy on me. Um, yeah, but it's, uh, yeah. It's a red book. It's on Amazon. Um, it's called The Seventh Property, mm-hmm. Bitcoin and the Monetary Revolution. Where does the um, title come from? Yeah. So, and this is kind of like a piece to discover as you read it that'll make more sense. But uh, in that initial first chapter on monetary theory, there's there's six properties of money. And that's like, if you're to fundamentally assess like what's good money, you can kind of break it down to these like six qualitative properties. And you'd say like, well, it needs to be scarce. Um it needs to be fungible. It needs to be durable. It needs to be widely accepted, um, and yada yada. And basically, those six properties are like the framework that you can use. You can apply that, and you can see why different monies emerge because they typically maintain some degree of most of those properties. And the the argument that I make in the book is that like Bitcoin has kind of defined a seventh property um, that I think should be incorporated into a lot of economic literature and. Um, and we'll see where that goes. But like a lot of people talk about how like uh, decentralization enables immutability. Um, so like if we can like the in in antiquity, like when money was starting, people created money themselves. They stored it themselves and they verified it themselves. Um, so there was no centralized groups that were really controlling money in these like small local communities, you know, like think like hunter gatherer tribes and stuff. And like that's kind of like how money emerged for like homo sapiens and like so with that there were certain forms of money that served pretty well but like as money evolved over time we moved away from a lot of those technologies and we're like well you know what it actually makes a lot more sense if we have people specialize in producing it um and if we have people that specialize in storing it for us and there's a lot of efficiencies that were gained from that but the problem with those efficiencies we gained is that we had to trust a lot of these institutions. And as they grew and as they got more powerful, um, there's kind of like a fundamental uh, economic argument that's like, um, so uh, people that have heard of like the agency problem, and that's if you hire um, somebody to be an agent for you, if they have a conflict of interest, then they will take advantage of you. So like a good example is like, if you have, if you were to hire like uh, a courier to like deliver something for you and you give him like, you know, he's got to deliver like a, you know, stack of papers, things that really don't really have much value to him. And you're going to pay him a hundred bucks. Then he's like, okay, cool. I'm going to deliver this. But if you gave him, you know, a million dollars of gold to go deliver to somebody and you're paying him a hundred bucks, well, now he's got a conflict of interest because he could just defect and he could take the gold. And um, that's kind of like fundamentally what's going on. It's like when you hire people to do something for you and they have a conflict of interest like that, AKA you ask people to control money for you, the most valuable good to anybody, the good that you can't get enough of, um, that money inherently has this major conflict of interest with controlling it. People are always trying to take advantage of it. That's why it's the most regulated industry in the world. That's why we hear about fraud all the time um, because of that. So like one of the issues is that we have trusted these major institutions over time um, at the at the cost of, or at the benefit of efficiency and I think that a lot of the negative outcomes mean that we should be assessing money kind of from the perspective of, oh, well, if something is can be 
decentralized and through its production and storage, then that ultimately, I define the property as immutability, um, which is kind of like a term that people in Bitcoin will refer to. It, well, it's more just like a term that's used frequently in like software applications, which means something that doesn't change. So um, if the monetary properties, having a decentralized form of money through its production and storage enables us to have a form of money that um, has immutable properties, meaning no institution can just come in and increase the money supply 40% a year. Um, so that's kind of the, that's, that's what the title is referring to. Thank you. Uh, I was going to ask you, cause I heard you talking about on the Bitcoin magazine interview about previous iterations of digital cash and I'm wondering if you can kind of give me and my listeners a breakdown or maybe just the importance of the history and the buildup. If there's, you know, something totally. or if there's one or two points people should take away from that, what, what should they be? Yeah. Um, so that, yeah, I think that that's such an important piece. Um, and I, I think what puts it, and this is probably bigger for a lot of the, uh, a lot of like the boomers that I'll talk to who are very skeptical of Bitcoin. I think when I talk, when you bring up like the history of Bitcoin and ultimately the technologies that evolved that were necessary to occur before Bitcoin was even possible, that's when it kind of puts it in perspective more of, oh, this is a very legitimate technology that people were spending, you know, 40 years to try to create. But a lot of that goes back to like the cypherpunk movement that emerged. And it was basically like, you know, back in the 70s when the internet emerged, um, there was this uh, counter movement that was basically you know, all these guys who were at this kind of confluence of, um, uh, you know, they had a background in cryptography, they had a background in programming, they understood Austrian economics. Um, they're just at this really weird confluence of knowledge that allowed them to ultimately have this vision for the future and be like, okay, here's what's going to happen with the internet. It's going to change the world. Um, and that's either going to be a tool for control or an enabler of freedom, depending on what happens. So if we don't have defensive technologies like cryptography that allow us to uh, protect our own privacy and protect the control of our own information, then ultimately we are going to be controlled by governments heavily in some form. And we see that surveillance state being uh, emerging. And that surveillance state has emerged in spite of the battle that's being fought with these technologies that have emerged over time. So like the, the cypherpunk movement was uh, groups of people that were pushing to defend people's rights with privacy. And it was very, you know, like uh, anarchist type movement. And um, I, I don't want to totally qualify it as that. I guess I don't know enough to say exactly, but there's definitely people with that type of uh, thinking that were involved in it. And um, so when, you know, one of the biggest examples of one of the issues that emerged in this movement was when um the uh the founder of like pgp encryption that was the encryption technology used in email created it the u.s government was trying to create get backdoor access into it and say like okay well we can't it's illegal to use this standard unless you allow us to be able to get into anything that we want to get into and um the the started that movement kind of created this open source code for it. Basically said, you can't censor what code we put out there and what people choose to adopt. And in this litigation process, um, what they ultimately did was they published the code because the U S government was saying, yes, we could. So the way that they did it, they said, um, 
Uh, and the U.S. government tried to invoke a law that was like, and uh, all, the the law was basically that if this technology is being used and sent to other countries, then that's illegal because it's a um, uh, it puts our military and our national security at risk by enabling other countries. Um, so it's like treason or something. And with uh, with these guys, they were like, okay, well. Um, they defended it by saying it's a, it's our right to free speech and it's our right to publish something freely. So what they did is they ultimately took this digital code and actually published it on uh, paper documents through MIT's publishing press. And they were shipping it over to Europe to prove their point. And with, um, so like the, uh, this group of cryptographers ultimately won that battle, but the U.S. is constantly fighting to get control and backdoor access over the internet as much as possible. And we see that in the headlines all the time. Um, so that was one of the first things was this movement was using cryptography to try to enable freedom within the internet and creating technologies that allow private citizens to defend themselves from people who want to create these surveillance states. But um, there's also the development of fundamental technologies that went into Bitcoin. So like a lot of that and that overlaps with that was like, there was this guy, David Chom, who created the concept of a digital signature. And he was kind of like the founder of uh, a lot of this. And if you were to say like, well, where did cryptocurrencies really start? It probably goes back to his creation. His company was DigiCash. Um, and that ultimately failed because uh he used this idea of digital signatures to basically allow people to send money in digital form um, and being able to prove that you are who you say you are um, without having to reveal a secret. So it's like the whole fundamental idea is basically like what we want to do is if we want to say we we want to prove knowledge of something. We want to prove that we know something, but we don't want to reveal what that knowledge is. We still want to keep that knowledge a secret. It's like a password or something um, without trusting anybody. So like digital signatures enabled us in a good analogy because the math gets really complex for how it works. But like a good analogy is like when you mix paint into a bucket, um, if I were to take a bucket and I'd be like, okay, I'm going to put 50% white paint in here. I'm going to put 50% red paint in here and mix it together. And I'm going to have pink paint. Um, I could give that bucket to somebody and say like, and they say, oh, okay, you have pink paint here. You must have used white paint and red paint to create that. So they know that you had white paint and red paint, but they don't know how much. But that's kind of how digital signatures work. They use math to kind of like um, mash a bunch of stuff together. And then you can produce a signature where you can mathematically verify like, oh, that guy does have knowledge of the private key. So we know that he has it, but we don't know what it is still. So like that was the first technology you used. But the problem was is when he used Digicast to send money, it was still dependent on centralized servers to be verified. And he couldn't really like solve that problem. Um, and uh, and then there was also, also, he pegged the supply of it to uh, like the US dollar. Whereas like Bitcoin was a free float currency that you had to bootstrap its value over time, which was a monumental feat that a lot of these early technologies avoided and they wanted to have some sort of pegged value system as well. Um, and they didn't really realize that, like, actually, if you're going to do this right, then it needs to achieve that monumental feat of bootstrapping value as an independent tech, uh, uh, form of money. So Digicast started and then, you know, Adam Back came along in the 90s and, you know, he created this hash cash uh, 
which was really designed to protect. Uh, it was a technology designed to like stop email spamming. Um, and it required people to solve complex math problems in order to send, or your computer to solve a complex math problem in order to send um, an email. So that means it would be costly to spam. People can just send out 10,000 emails. So like what Satoshi did is he applied that to Bitcoin um, by uh, using those types of mathematical puzzles to make something scarce. It, it was It's a form of math that is hard for computers to solve. So by doing that, he required that's what mining is predicated upon is solving these problems to make Bitcoin scarce when it increases in supply. Um, and then, you know, the big piece was the blockchain data structure that also emerged in the nineties. Um, and it was based on this, uh, this paper where in this also depended upon a centralized trusted entity to verify all of this, but the blockchain data structure is just a very efficient way of creating this data structure where every piece of data that comes previously, if we have a list of data over time, everything that comes before the most recent piece of data, um, the most recent piece of data is dependent upon everything before it. So that allowed us to create this very efficient structure of where if something in the history of that data changes, and we're immediately aware of it in our current um, uh, field that we're looking at. So it's a really efficient way that allowed people to uh, be aware of anything, any tampering of the blockchain. and um, and quickly verify in a very efficient way what, what transactions are going into it. So those three technologies are kind of what Satoshi used when he was creating Bitcoin. And, um, and it was actually in 2005 was when Nick Szabo kind of proposed this idea. Um, and that's kind of the reason that, you know, those three years before 2008, a lot of people speculate that like Szabo was Satoshi. But um, so the key ingredient that Satoshi solved though was all these technologies still were dependent on this idea of like a trusted um, set of servers to still verify these things. And Satoshi aligned all these incentives and used all these technologies to actually make it decentralized and it actually worked. And, um, and that was like the monumental feat, which I think is probably, I feel like that's the hardest part just because like to create the technology and have all that try to think about it in advance and be like, whether or not this would actually work is like, I can't even fathom how hard that would be and how, you know, what type of mind it would take to do something like that. But it, he did it and then it worked. And then, um, and then here we are today. Do you have any predictions for this uh, Q4 or do you have any metrics that you follow closely? Yeah. I mean, I'm not as big on, I don't follow like, you know, on chain and stuff as much. Like I'm bullish. I, I try to spend, I try to spend more time thinking about um, what the ecosystem needs and how I'm going to build something out that'll benefit that. But like, I, you know, I don't have a question in my mind that over the next 10 years, Bitcoin is going to succeed and go up a ton in value. So I, I try not to focus as much on the short-term stuff, but yeah, I'm super bullish this fourth quarter. I think that a lot of, a lot of things are lining up. Um, the spot market's doing really well. Uh, and that means there's a lot more room for leverage to return. And um the institutional interest that has come around so rapidly over the past year and just how mainstream this is. And I very rarely talk to people just anecdotally anymore that are like as skeptical of Bitcoin. There's, there's people who say, I don't get it yet now. And I'm unsure, but 
before there's so many people I talked to like, Oh no, you know, they're already certain it's going to fail, you know, yada, yada, yada. I like never see that anymore. And I think there's this huge shift in the zeitgeist. People are hitting inflation. Like it's just an absolutely perfect storm. Um, so like the short-term indicators are there, the long-term indicators are there. Um, and, um, I think Q4 is going to be pretty big time. So, yeah. Very exciting. Uh, when you're not knee deep in Bitcoin, Eric, what else do you like to do? Ooh, uh, like to work out, man. I work out. I waste a ton of time on Twitter and, um, yeah, I mean, I'm up here in the mountains. This is, so this is lion's head right here. Um, which is the the other side of this is Vail. So, um, yeah, so like there's like lion's head village in Vail, but yeah, I'm a Colorado guy. So I'm going to be skiing a bunch this winter and, um, yeah, man, I like to, I like to hang out and I like to chill with my buddies and yeah right on right on mm-hmm. well well uh if you don't have any uh questions or comments where can we follow you learn more where can we go and buy your book yeah totally um so you can buy my book on amazon and uh it's just you know you search seventh property i also have a website I, the best thing to do is just follow me on twitter and i have all my stuff linked and then you go on my website i have a newsletter but it's not really like a newsletter it's more like I send stuff when I think there's something really important to say. So no frequency or anything like that. Um, but I'll probably be sending some towards the end of the year on what I think is going on in the markets. And um, yeah, so just give me give me a follow on Twitter. That's Eric, E-R-I-C, last name Yakes, Y-A-K-E-S. All right, Eric, I'm going to thank you for your time and coming on to the Habit Report podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for breaking everything down for my listeners. Uh, I'll definitely shoot up all your links in the show notes and I'll be in touch in a couple days, man. Thanks again. Yeah. Good talking to you, Brad. Cheers. See ya. Cheers. Thanks everybody for listening to episode 53 of the Having Report podcast with myself, Brad Mines, and our guest today, Eric Yates. Go to the show notes, check out all his links, follow him on Twitter, and definitely go to thehavingreport.com.